You're listening to the Cases That Made a Difference show. Welcome, everyone. This is Paul Myers, CEO and Chairman of Advocate Capital. In this episode of Cases That Made a Difference, we talk with Paul Bland, Executive Director of Public Justice, about an amicus victory in a case involving the issue of first impression under the recently passed Ending Forced Arbitration in Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act. If you have a topic you would like to hear about, please email us at podcasts at advocatecapital.com. Now let's get to the show. Paul Bland serves as an executive director, managing and leading Public Justice's legal and foundation staff, guiding the organization's litigation docket and other advocacy. Paul has worked with the organization since 1997. He has argued and won more than 40 cases that led to reported decisions for consumers, employers, or whistleblowers, including one victory in the U.S. Supreme Court, and has won one or more cases in six of the U.S. Courts of Appeals and the high courts of 10 different states. Could you tell us a little bit on a a 30,000-foot level of what Public Justice Foundation's mission is? Sure. So we're a nonprofit legal advocacy group. Um, We focus on the sustainability of the earth. So we do some important environmental cases and advocacy. We focus a lot on corporate predatory conduct. So consumer rights, um, uh, worker safety, worker uh, rights in different forms. And we um, uh, work on some important civil rights types of cases. And we're, we're organized in projects. So we have several people who work on fighting against factory farms, particularly pollution and worker safety. We have several people who work on gender violence in college campuses and K through 12. We have several people who work on what we call debtor's prison cases. Um, So that's uh, where some local governments use essentially private debt collectors um, to collect government fees and fines. And they actually put a lot of people in jail um, for uh, not being able to pay, you know, something as small as a traffic ticket. Um, We have several people who work on um, fossil fuel pollution, and then the rest of our lawyers work on what we call access to justice issues. So that's things like fighting against the forced arbitration clauses, uh, excessive court secrecy, overly broad federal preemption defenses, that sort of thing. Well, thank you, Paul, for all that information and all the fabulous work that you and your team at Public Justice Foundation do. We at Advocate know how important it is. Our mission is to help an ever-increasing number of plaintiff attorneys get even better results for their clients, and I know that's your mission as well. So we really appreciate it. We're glad to be aligned with you and glad to support your organization. Um, Now we're going to go into, speaking of another case that you guys have been involved with, Johnson v. Every Realm, Uh, and it has to do with the Ending Forced Arbitration and Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act, which is quite a mouthful. But uh, could, could you share, us a little, uh, share with us a little bit about that case? Sure. So, you know, there's a, a word that shows up a lot in employment law and a lot of other areas of uh, it's intersectionality. And it uh, might sound like jargon, but it actually really matters. And so one of, the, one of the basic ideas that you'll see if you study employment law is that a workplace that has discrimination on one type of uh, uh, of one sort is very frequently going to have discrimination of other sorts as well. So this this guy works at this company. Um, it's a real estate company, mostly on- online. And um, uh, uh, his allegations are that his supervisor uh, first begins uh, pressuring him to have sex with uh, uh, co-workers and also with clients. Then she's doing this in part because she's got, um, he's an African-American guy and she's um, got uh, uh, these stereotypes about uh, 
black men and sexuality. Um, he, 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 you know, raises appropriately that this is improper and then is fired. So there are three different sets of claims here, arguably. One is uh, there's the sexual harassment claim. Uh, then you have a race discrimination and then you have retaliation. So what um, brings a lawsuit. And so now Congress passed this law in 2022 that uh, essentially bans the use of arbitration clauses in cases involving sexual harassment, sexual assault. Um, and it's uh, broadly worded um, and it's, it's clearly worded. And so what the defendant here is trying to do is they're trying to say, all right, um, you, can, um, you can go forward in court with the sexual harassment part of your case, but you can't with race discrimination or retaliation because race discrimination or retaliation isn't um, sexual harassment or assault, and therefore the arbitration clause can be enforced. And so the statute is worded more broadly than that. Um, the statute basically says a case that involves sexual harassment or assault uh, uh, can't be forced into arbitration. So we filed an amicus brief that looked at, um, that supported the uh, employment lawyers and the, and the plaintiff's lawyers in this case are really terrific. And we filed an amicus brief that came in and talked about both the statute and its language, but also some of the, the uh, ideas that animate the statute. And so we were really, really excited to see the federal district court um, reject the motion to compel arbitration with respect to all of the claims. So not just um, the harassment and assault, you know, the harassment claims, but also the race discrimination and retaliation claims. And we think that was the right decision under the statute, but it's a really important one for a number of reasons. And I know, I know that thus far the court has has ruled in the plaintiff's favor to not allow arbitration on any of the issues. What are what are the potential longer term implications of that decision? Should it stand as written? So, so I think it's a it's a great question. It's a really important one. You know, if if you were to go the other way, so first first the practicalities of the case are enormous. So uh, you take a look at this this person's case. If he's got to go forward in court on the sexual harassment claims, but then in arbitration on the race discrimination and the retaliation claims, he's basically got the same case being tried in two different places, two different sets of discovery, two different decision makers. You could have inconsistent rules. It's going to take a lot more resources. It's just a way for the corporate defendant to sort of grind somebody under to drag things out in a way that's really unreasonable. So doing it all one place, one time is really important. But I think it's also, I think it's, it's also the, the district court's decision here is important because it recognizes that discrimination in something like this gets all woven together. The intersectionality idea is a real one, right? So, you know, the, the, the harassment um, proceeds, it comes from, it's informed, it's driven in part by this race, racism and white supremacy of a very particular sort. They're tied together. They aren't, you really can't disaggregate them. Trying to split this in part into two different forums would have been something that really missed what was going on and what was both illegal and creepy about it. So I think it's something, I think it's really important from the perspective of how the law develops to have the entire case done in one place. And so I think that that, I think it's both going to be practical, it's going to be practically significant to people who represent uh, employee, you know, workers who've been discriminated against. But I also think that it's, um, uh, I think it, 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 it makes sense. It ties the ideas of these things together in a way that I think is appropriate and lets the law develop in a good way. Well, thank you. And, and, and 
kind of something you just said kind of brought to mind. I know in, in, in another episode, you and I discussed some implications of, of readings and procedural rules invo- involving the Federal Arbitration Act, which has been around since 1925. Uh, and so over the years, these procedural rules have kind of forced arbitration without really looking at the text of the actual law itself. This particular law, the, uh, again, Ending Forced Arbitration and Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act, I think you said was passed in 2022. So I would, I would have to think that it's a, it's a good thing to kind of get out ahead of that before these types of procedural rules are fully established to challenge these kind of things where, where you can as quickly as you can. Absolutely. You know, we get we get asked to file a ton of amicus briefs. So in a typical year, we're probably getting a re- something like 200 or 250 requests for amicus briefs. And so we, you know, we we have about 25 lawyers. We're not able to ro- file 250 amicus briefs a year. We can't do it. But, you know, we look for some cases where we think we can make an impact. And our team came to me about this case and said, this is going to probably be the first case interpreting this brand new statute. And it's really important that the first couple of cases be right. So we sort of dropped everything, you know, worked my team, like working through the nights and weekends to make it possible to, uh, to uh, uh, get something together that we thought was really strong to help try and shape the law here. And so I was really glad that we were able to get involved at the early stage. And the point you make is exactly right. The Federal Arbitration Act you know, written in 1925, had gotten more and more out of whack over time. And so by the late 1990s, the, the statute is being interpreted in ways that the Congress that passed it never would have wanted, never would have agreed with. And so we're trying to try to avoid that with this new law. Well, again, the, the work you guys are doing on this front is incredibly important. We all know that arbitration clauses have been twisted and really used just to, for lar- by large corporations and insurance companies to get things thrown out of court to force uh, consumers, individuals into uncomfortable and expensive situations. And again, you talked about the practicalities of this particular item. Part of the, I'm sure, the, the motivation for the defense here was to split that apart and make it a real difficult proposition for that individual to, to get justice and force it into two different jurisdictions, if you will. And so the important work that you guys do, especially early on like this and clarifying uh, what the intent of the law is and, and was uh, and, and forcing uh, these corporations to go to court and actually litigate all of the causes of action uh, with with these types of, of, of suits is incredibly important and will help everybody get justice the way they should. I, I totally agree. I think that's really an important point. And, you know, um, one of the things that we know about, about uh, forced arbitration in the employment setting is, you know, the arbitrators are much more likely to be corporate defense lawyers. You know, so, you know, uh, uh, race discrimination case that's in arbitration, you're going to have it heard not by a jury of 12 people, but you're going to have it heard by one lawyer who's probably mostly spent their career defending race discrimination cases for other corporations. And so as a result, there's a lot of empirical evidence. This uh, professor um, at... Um, Cornell's gathered every single case that went forward in arbitration over a period of something like 10 years and has this huge sample of cases that went in front of the American Arbitration Association, which is the biggest arbitration company, and compared them to cases that went in court. And so a corporation is substantially more likely to win a case in arbitration um, than it is likely to win the same case in court. Um, so arbitration favors the corporate defendants. But then if there is a if the plaintiff does win and the worker does win, the average awards 
average only 20 to 25% of the average awards in court. So the arbitration system is resulting in corporations winning more often. And then, and when, and when the, when the human being does win, that they win much smaller amounts than they would have in court. And so it really is a rigged system. And so, you know, I mean, I think that in a perfect world, the Congress wouldn't have just said that uh, a sexual harassment assault cases wouldn't go to arbitration. They would have said that no employment cases would go to arbitration, but you didn't have the votes for that in the current uh, Congress or the Congress yet in 2022. And so, you know, they got they got the, the best law that you could get through that Congress. And it's still it's still important. You know, and I think that the Congress um, was uh, influenced by uh, me, too, frankly, you know, it. Um, uh, I mean, I think that the Congress understands that if there's some body of law that they actually care about, that they can that they need to say that you can't have uh, arbitration of claims under that law. So um, uh, when you come out of the on the financial crisis of 2008, um, we we knew that mortgage fraud was a big driver of something that cost you know the stock market fell by 50 percent at its lowest. So um, in Dodd Frank. They just said no claim involving a mortgage can ever, no mortgage can ever have an arbitration clause again because because they needed the Congress needed to make sure we didn't have fraud of mortgage of um, and mortgages anymore, and so I think that this statute's the same kind of thing. Coming out of Me Too, you had votes on both sides of the aisle that have people who are saying we've got to take a sexual assault and harassment claim seriously, and that meant you had to ban arbitration of it. Unfortunately, we don't yet have the votes in the Congress to say that, you know, all, all other types of employment claims are also that way, but hopefully that'll come. Right. And, you know, another another factor, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, my understanding is if, if a case goes to arbitration, most of the time those proceedings and the result of those proceedings is confidential. Well, so... Um, uh, Arbitration clauses sometimes have really broad gag orders in them that make that kind of thing confidential. Um, uh, California has a statute that requires at least broadly the results to be um, disclosed in employment cases. So um, the outcomes of American arbitration uh, uh, decisions, you know, from the American Arbitration Association or others, um, if they handle 50 or more cases a year, I think is a threshold, have to be announced at least at some level. But the vast majority of the proceedings are are secretive, so it's really hard to find out, you know, what the arbitrator, what the basis for an arbitrator's ruling is. Um, it's really hard to find out what evidence there were. The hearings are closed; they can't be um, uh, people, members of the public, and the media can't get into the hearings generally. Um, so the system's very secretive and much less transparent than the court system, and that is a huge problem. You're exactly right. Well, and and kind of part of it you know, holding corporations accountable for their actions partially is financial. I mean, corporations really are nothing more than a vehicle to make a profit and there's no evil and there's no moral bad thing in that necessarily, but all too often that drive for profit results in bad acts. But a lot of the, the, the impact that I can see, not just from the standpoint of better results for the consumer in court would be holding those corporations accountable in the in the world of public relations and and having those kind of grievances aired in a fair and, and unbiased way where the public and the media can see and hear what actually went on. That's exactly right. I mean our court system is supposed to be public. 
you know, we're not supposed to be China or Iran or a country that has a secret, a secret sealed court system. And the arbitration systems are much more um, buttoned down. And the facts of what ha what's happened to somebody are, mu are, are much harder to find out. And the system as a whole is just far more secretive. And it's a real, it's a real problem. And it's, it's not the way the justice system in this country should work, in my view. Well, we here at Advocate and I myself personally definitely agree with you. And Paul, I really appreciate your time today and for all this great information, but most importantly for the fabulous work that you and your team at Public Justice Foundation do. We are proud supporters, proud to be on your team. Well, I'm so grateful to you for your, your kindness and your generosity and your support, and it means a ton to us. And I really appreciate you inviting me here today. This has been, it's been great to talk through this stuff with you and I've really enjoyed it. So thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us today. This podcast was brought to you by Advocate Capital, purveyors of the Advotrack Case Expense Funding Service. Advocate Capital is a team of Seventh Amendment champions who have been serving plaintiff law firms nationwide since 1999. Through a partnership with Pinnacle Financial Partners, Advocate can also assist with all of your firm's banking needs. And Advocate's AdvoCap Insurance Agency serves the insurance needs of plaintiff law firms exclusively. Banking products are offered by Pinnacle Bank, a Tennessee bank, member FDIC. Insurance products are not deposits, not insured by the FDIC or any other government agency, nor are they guaranteed by Pinnacle Bank. For more information, visit AdvocateCapital.com.